chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Jeroboam, son of Abijah, became sick. Preparing you. There's going to be a lot of names that are going to be similar. This is Ahijah is the prophet that anointed Jeroboam as king. Abijah is the son of Jeroboam. And I'll try to enunciate, over-enunciate to help any reading along too. At that time, Jeroboam's son, Abijah, became sick. And Jeroboam told his wife, disguise yourself so that people cannot recognize you are Jeroboam's wife. Then go to Shiloh, where Ahijah, the prophet who told me that I would rule over the nation, lives there. Take ten loaves of bread, some small cakes, and a container of honey, and visit him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. Now, why isn't Jeroboam going? And why is he disguising his wife? Good. He's not going because the prophet doesn't know he's a disobedience. And maybe if he disguises himself, Yahweh will never see it happening. <laughs> now, that's not uncommon. Remember, this is pagan way of thinking. The peg- I mean, the pagan prophets are on their own. The gods really don't guide them. So it's easy to deceive prophets. But they're not used to really believing that Yahweh is truly all-knowing and all-powerful. So they say, oh, if I can deceive all the other prophets of the other gods, then why can I deceive the prophet of Yahweh? This is how far Israel's fallen. Just with David, it was very clear that David knew who Yahweh was. He wrote tons of psalms about Yahweh. They were circulated. Many of them were sung by the priests and people as they went to the temple to sacrifice. Solomon knew who Yahweh was. That speech at the temple, even though the temple was disobedient, the speech was amazing. Except for the little inconsistencies. And just one generation later, they're like, Oh, you can deceive Yahweh's prophets. I can seize a prophet of Yahweh and try to kill him with no problem. It didn't take long. It did not take long for the next generation to completely forget. There's no way that Yahweh is going to be in approval of me, not after everything that's been happening. And maybe he'd be sympathetic to a mourning mother who's about ready to lose her child. And if you look like a different mother, he won't be connected to royalty or the king. Because people have even more compassion on poor mothers. Now, what is ironic here? Who is he going to for healing? Yahweh, why is this ironic? He doesn't believe in him. I mean, he believes that he exists, but he, he hasn't been worshiping him. He hasn't been sacrificing Yahweh. Why doesn't he go to his pagan gods? Because deep down inside, yeah, he knows who really has the power. And he has a memory of his hand being healed by Yahweh. Deep down inside, he knows. Which means he just doesn't want to submit to the authority of Yahweh. has nothing to do with not believing in Yahweh. And it certainly has nothing to do with not believing that Yahweh has the power to actually take care of my life. has everything to do with, I want autonomy. And I've already talked about this before, but that's the real reason why people don't follow God. Whether consciously or subconsciously, it really has everything to do with autonomy and not enough evidence. And so this is, he goes, when push comes, he goes to Yahweh, but he knows there's no way as a hypocrite that Yahweh is really going to honor this. 
So let's deceive him. For, verse 4, Jeroboam's wife did as she was told. She went to Shiloh and visited Ahijah, and now Ahijah cannot see. Bonus! <laughs> he wouldn't even be able to see that I'm the wife of Jeroboam. My disguise doesn't even have to be that great. He's lost his eyesight in his old age. But Yahweh had told Ahijah, Look, Jeroboam's wife is coming to find out from you what will happen to her son, for he is sick. Tell her so-and-so. Because he doesn't need physical eyesight. When she comes, she will be in disguise. I love this. When Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps as she came through the, the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why the pretense? Why to be someone else? I have been commissioned to give you bad news. All that work for nothing. Go tell Jeroboam that this is what Yahweh God of Israel says. I raised you up from among the people and made you rule over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the Davidic dynasty and gave it to you. But you are not like my servant David who kept all my commandments and followed me wholeheartedly by doing what I approve. You have sinned more than all those who came before you. You have sinned more than any Israelite who has ever existed before you. Especially after reading the end of Judges. How would you like that on your tombstone? Here lies Harry. He did more evil than all those who came before him. You went and angered me by making other gods formed out of metal. You have completely disregarded me. So I am ready to bring disaster on the dynasty of Jeroboam. I will cut off every last male belonging to Jeroboam in Israel, including even the weak and the incapacitated. I will burn up the dynasty of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it's completely consumed. Dogs will eat the members of your family who die in the city, and the birds of the sky will eat the ones who die in the country. Indeed, Yahweh has announced it. Now, that's a harsh judgment. Every single male is going to die. Now, you're like, we've already talked about this corporate guilt. But the reality is, if you have a father like this, and you're coming from the, most of the families like this as well, you will be burned like dung. Basically, all that dung is worth for is starting fires and burning. And not that... This is not to be taken literally because he's not going to literally be burned, every single family. But it's a metaphor for the completeness of your destruction and the desecration of your burial. Those who die in the city will be eaten by dogs and those who die in the countryside will be eaten by the vultures and the buzzards and all that. Now, in the ancient world, they don't have pet dogs. If you do have a pet dog, it's for hunting and killing things but it's not for curling up on the fire and petting. And so they're wild dogs, and they eat human bodies. They're more like wolves. I mean, they don't look like wolves, but think more like wolves in the way that they act. So this is a complete annihilation. Every single male. Verse 12, As for you, wife of Jeroboam, get up and go home. And when you set foot in the city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn him and bury him. He is the only one in Jeroboam's family who will receive a decent burial, 
for he is the only one whom Yahweh God of Israel found anything good. So the boy is still going to die of the sickness, but the boy will be buried in a good way because he's the only one in all of this family that there's anything good in him. Probably because he hasn't become old enough to be thoroughly corrupted by his family yet. And maybe God is ending his life short to spare him from that corruption. Who knows? The things of God are way beyond us. Yahweh, verse 14, will raise up a king over Israel who will cut off Jeroboam's dynasty. It is ready to happen. Yahweh will attack Israel, making it like a reed that sways in the water. He will remove Israel from this good land he gave to your, their ancestors and scattered them beyond the Euphrates River because they angered Yahweh by making Asherah poles and he will hand Israel over to the enemies because of the sins which Jeroboam committed, which he had made Israel commit. Now this is the first time the exiles mention. The first time the exiles mention, I will take you out of the land and scatter you beyond the Euphrates. That is where the Assyrian Empire is. And it's the only time that exile is going to be mentioned until we actually get to the exile. So Jeroboam's wife went up and went back to Tirzah. So she crossed the threshold of the house and the boy died. Can you imagine that journey home as a mother? All Israel buried him and mourned for him, just as Yahweh had predicted through his servant, the prophet Ahijah. Now you're going to keep noticing that repetition over and over again. Just as Yahweh had predicted. Just as Yahweh's word had said. Just as the prophet of Yahweh had, that's going to come over and over again. And a very common theme throughout the book of Kings is nothing stops the word of Yahweh. The word of Yahweh never falls short and never fails. The rest of the events of Jeroboam's reign, including the details of his battles and the rule, are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the Kings of Israel. Jeroboam ruled for 22 years. He passed away. His son Nadab replaced him as king. So this is the summary. We have no idea what the annuals of the kings is. It has never been found, never been discovered in any kind of way. Most likely, it is merely a document that just chronicles literally like a um, ledger of just all the accomplishments of the king. He defeated this army, defeated that, dealt this, levied these taxes, whatever. And usually only the good accomplishments. Kings were not known for allowing bad things to be recorded about themselves. So what God is saying is, there's lots of other things that he did, but I don't care about those things. Because this is not a history book about king's accomplishments. This is a theology book about who I am and what their relationship with me is like. And how do I deal with that when it is godly? And how do I deal with it when it's not godly? All those other events, they don't shed any light on that theological idea and principle. Each king's reign is concluded with a closing summary. After we get to the end of each king, it will be concluded. We saw one with Solomon, but it was kind of unique because he stands out unique before the divided kingdom. And the narrator will conclude with first mentioning all the rest of their accomplishments. Usually, like, maybe one thing, like, they also did this, but then it'll say, and they did a whole bunch of other things. And it's recorded in the 
usually the annuals of the king, but there's a couple other books that are mentioned as well. Then, if there's any extra information about the king's reign, something that is not important for theological purposes as a detailed story, but something that still sheds light on his character, that will be recorded. And then in most cases, the, the, the son that follows him will be recorded. The son that follows afterwards will be recorded. So he was succeeded by his son, Nadab. That is usually the, the template that they go by. That this king, um, other accomplishments, then he was succeeded by his son. Now here, it also lists how many years he reigned. Usually that's only for the opening summary. But because Jeroboam's reign opened differently, it opened up in the middle of Solomon's reign, and he didn't have an official introduction, we're getting how many years he reigned at the end of his life. But he is unique in that sense. So Jeroboam is dead, and now we expect a wholesale massacre of his family to be coming soon. Now the narrator goes back to Judah and covers the reign of Rehoboam. Verse 21, now Rehoboam, son of Solomon, ruled in Judah, and he was 41 years old when he became king, and he ruled for 17 years in Jerusalem. The city of Yahweh chose for, from all of the tribes of Israel to be his home. His mother was an Ammonite woman named Naamah. Rehoboam's reign begins with the customary opening summary. Now, yes, we've already been introduced to him, but remember, his introduction opened up in the reign of Solomon quickly after that. So now we're getting an official introduction to Rehoboam's reign. All king's reigns are bracketed with an opening and closing summary, with the exception of Jeroboam, which we've already talked about. And the opening summary, specific information is included. First, the king's ascension date is provided, usually synchronized with the king of the opposite kingdom. So it'll say he reigned in this year, of the king of Israel, if he's from Judah. Or he reigned in this year of the king of Judah, if he lives in Israel. So synchronize with that king. For the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, their age at their ascension is also provided. So their age when they became king is only provided for the kings of Judah. With the exception of Abijah and 1 Kings 15, and Asa, or Asa, and 1 Kings 15 as well. Then the length and the place of the reign is provided, how many years they reign, and then where they reign from, the city specifically that they reign. Also, for the kings of Judah, the name of the queen's mother is cited. Now, I think that's interesting. It may be just to show that they're following the line of David, that the father has already been mentioned before, because the father is the previous king in Judah, and now the mother's also being mentioned probably to show the intactment of the dynasty. The dynasty. Where in Israel, their dynasties don't take, stay intact. And they're going to constantly be replaced and overturned over all the time. And the mothers are not as important. Then the opening summary concludes with a theological evaluation of the king's worship practice. This is where they're either said to be righteous or evil or ungodly in any kind of way. And the kings of Israel often compared to Jeroboam, and the kings of Judah are going to be often compared to David. So whenever we talk about king of Israel in the north, they're going to be compared to Jeroboam, either as evil or more evil or whatever evil. There are no good kings in Israel. There are no good kings in Israel. There will be one who kind of gets there, 
but it doesn't last. The kings of Judah will then be compared to David as in they fall in the ways of David or they did not do what was right in, in the way that David did. Verse 22, Judah did evil in the sight of Yahweh, and they made him more jealous by their sins than their ancestors had done. Even though Rehoboam has been said to be evil already, it's interesting that it makes it very clear that all of Judah is evil. And all of Judah and this generation right after Solomon is said to be more evil than the previous generations before them. So right now we can see that we're starting off very low on a morality level. They even built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, and asherah poles on every high hill and under every green tree. There were also male and cultic prostitutes in the land, and they committed the same horrible sins as the nations that Yahweh had driven out from before the Israelites. Talk about the asherah poles. Asherah poles have already been mentioned, but now it's being specifically highlighted here, really emphasized. Remember Baal. Baal is a storm god. He's going to come back very soon. Baal is a storm god in, in the Phoenician territory and in Canaan. Phoenicia is that orange up there on the map, and the Canaanite territory is the purple, and they've been largely dealt with, but they still biologically mm-hmm. exist, and their worship still lives. Baal is a storm god. He had several consorts. One consort was his sister, Anat, who was the goddess of love and war. Another one of his consorts was Asherah, who was his mother. So his sister was his wife, and his mother was his wife in the the theology. The Asherah poles are also called sacred. um, So there's Asherah poles. Asherah pole was a tree that was had a lot of its branches cut off, or some of just the bottom ones, and then two, and then it had a woman with some bosom carved into it, and the branches were ber- ber- um, bent to um, emphasize that, because she was a fertility goddess. Oftentimes, they're called Asherah groves. And the reason they're called Asherah groves is they would literally go into the woods and carve tons of these images of Asherah into the tree trunks. So there would be a whole grove of her images everywhere. And they would go into the woods and have sexual practices in order to invoke fertility of their children and of their crops. The sacred pillars or stones are called the matzabah, and they were associated with Baal. So even though he's not specifically mentioned here, the sacred stones are mentioned. And they are Baal, and Baal means Lord. And even Yahweh is sometimes called Baal because it's just the Hebrew word for Lord. So not every single time is the word Baal referring to the god Baal. The context usually makes it very clear when it's Baal or when it's just Lord. He is the chief Phoenician god of Canaan and Phoenicia, and they worshipped him as the sun sometimes, but most specifically the storm god. And he enabled the crops to grow and people produce children. These were very fertility-oriented gods, and they're erecting these sacred stones for Baal and these Asherah poles all over Judah. The people have become so evil that they're erecting these things all over Judah. Now, Asherah was the name of the chief female goddess worshipped by the Phoenicians and the Canaanites. Asherah was her name, called by the Canaanites. The Phoenicians called her Astarte. 
Astarte. And the Assyrians called her Ishtar. So you've probably heard those names. All throughout the Bible, Baal and Asher are paired together many, many, many times. And over time in Israel, they're going to merge Baal with Yahweh. And it really does seem to suggest later in Israel's history, they will actually begin to worship Asherah as the wife of Yahweh. Now, a lot of atheists have looked at archaeological stuff and said, you hypocrites, Yahweh has a wife. Look at your historical accounts. The Jews worshipped Yahweh and Asherah, his wife. You were a fertility religion at one time as well. What they don't realize is, just because the people of Israel sinned and walked away from God and turned into that abhorrence, doesn't mean that's what Yahweh really is. So a lot of Christians either respond in ignorance and say, that's not true, when historically speaking, it is true. Or they're like, what, really? And then they start leaving Christianity. But you need to know historically, that is true. Israel began to connect Yahweh to this Asherah woman as his consort, as his wife. And Baal and Yahweh often got mixed together as well. But that was their paganism of it. And then what you can do too is the prophets make it very clear, as well as other books, but especially the prophets, that God abhorred that. He abhorred that. That would be no different than saying, yes, I screw up as a Christian, but that doesn't mean that's what God wants me to be. I am not the shining example of Christianity, but I'm also not going to sit here and say that is Christianity. And we need, we, you need to understand that. Judah is erecting these things everywhere. They're just as sinful as their kings, because remember, whatever the leaders do, the people will follow. Now, there will be exceptions, but God is not interested in highlighting the exceptions right now. Verse 25. In King Rehoboam's fifth year, King Shishak of Egypt attacked Jerusalem. Now, this is one of the very few pharaohs that's actually mentioned by name. He took away the treasures of Yahweh's temple and the royal palace, and he took everything, including all the golden shields and Solomon had made, and King Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them and assigned them to the officers of the royal guard and protected the entrance of the royal palace. Whenever the king visited Yahweh's temple, the royal guard carried them and then brought them back to the guard room. All of Solomon's splendor that he put into the temple didn't even last one generation before Shishak robbed it all. And once again, not once was the tabernacle ever raided or attacked or destroyed. And yet, not even one generation later, the temple's already being raided and robbed of everything. This is God's judgment against them. God is making it clear that this is not his place of blessing because they're choosing to go to the Baals and Asherahs. Most likely, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't taken. Well, it wasn't taken because the Ark of the Covenant is going to be mentioned a little bit later and in the in Kings and Chronicles. But what's interesting is the Ark of the Covenant was mentioned in chapter 8 with Solomon. It's only going to be mentioned one other time later in the book of Kings. And then it's, other than that, it's never mentioned ever again. It's never mentioned again. So he leaves the Ark of the Covenant alone for whatever reason. Verse 29, the rest of the events of Rehoboam's reign, including his accomplishments, are recorded in the scroll of the annuals of the kings of Judah, Rehoboam and Jeroboam were continually at war with each other. 
Rehoboam passed away. He was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. His mother was the Ammonite named Naamah, and his son was Abijah. Not the Abijah of Jeroboam that died, but the Abijah of Rehoboam that's going to become the next king. That's why I gave you a chart. So notice it says all throughout their life they were at war. Rehoboam was told by the prophet to not attack Israel. And he listened to the prophet and he turned around and went back home. But that didn't last. For whatever reason, he went back and he attacked and they started a war. This is the beginning of a 57-year war between Judah and Israel. They're going to constantly be attacking each other from 931 B.C. to 874 B.C. And between the chapters of chapter 12 and chapter 16 of 1 Kings. So for 50, the next 57 years, Israel and Judah, brothers in the same nation, people of God, are going to be at war with each other, attacking each other for supremacy. 